Today on the New Species Podcast, we're going to talk to a researcher who studies plant hoppers. These are little insects that can spread diseases from one plant to another, and that's how he initially got interested in them. And then he just found out they're really, really cool. Let's get started. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Dr. Brian Bader, an assistant professor at the University of Florida's Fort Lauderdale Research and Education Center. He's here today to talk to me about his paper in the September 6th issue of Zoatax, on which he and his co-authors describe a new species of plant hopper from Costa Rica. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Uh, I appreciate the invitation, and I'm excited to be here. I, it just dawned on me as we started this here, it's going to be, hi, Brian, hello, Brian, hi, yep. Brian, hello, Brian, back and forth. I don't often interview people with the same name, so there we go. Well, your email came through a bunch of whole other different Brian's, so I was getting confused, but I think <laughs> we got it. <laughs> Let's jump right into this. Your new paper is about a new species of plant hopper. What is a plant hopper? I'm sure people have seen them before, but most people probably just never really realized what they were. So tell us what they are. Generally, they're uh, relatively small insects uh, that can be the from the quarter side. inch or so, somewhere in that range, right? Uh, yeah, about that. Um, and typically, uh, most of the time, people encounter them if they're just brushing against the vegetation. They'll see little bugs jumping off of it. And typically, if it's uh, you know, if it jumps off a plant and it kind of has a, uh, it looks like a focused individual uh, jumping really quick it's probably a plant hopper. You know, when you hit a moth, they look kind of indecisive when they're flying around. Uh, a plant hopper, it kind of shoots pretty pretty straight. Yeah, they almost bullet off of the vegetation, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then if, if somebody actually caught one, what would they look like? Um, generally speaking, like just kind of a big generality. I understand there's a lot of variation in color and size and all that, but just kind of generally, what's their body form look like? Um, it's kind of uh, somewhat cylindrical to over oval-shaped uh, insects, and as a frame of reference, uh, if people, one of the insects people encounter commonly, especially this past year with Brood 10, is a cicada, and it's just kind of a miniature version of cicada is the closest uh, frame of reference, I, I would say. In a really miniature version, because like I said, we're talking yeah. like four to eight millimeters in this particular grouping that you're talking about, and that's like a quarter inch in that range, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. there is a high degree of variability. So you can get stuff, you know, two, three millimeters. You know, I have some plant hoppers that are like one and a half, to two millimeters long. Sure. Uh, but then there are some, uh, the larger lantern flies in South America that, uh, you know, they can get up to five inches long. They're huge. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> there's... Uh, I would say the average, though, yeah, you're looking at three to four, uh, maybe five millimeters long, uh, but there's a big spectrum on, on size for these things. What do these things do ecologically? Like, wh why are they important out in the world, or what are they doing in the world? Not necessarily why they're important, but what are they doing? Um, well, like most groups, they have a, a highly variable uh, spectrum. 
spectrum of uh, niches that they, they fill and behaviors and, and all sorts of things. Uh, the, so because of the nature of my, my main research uh, interest, uh, one of the most, uh, for me, uh, not for everybody, obviously, but for me, one of the most fascinating aspects of, of plant hoppers and their ecology is that they are um, an efficient group for uh, vectoring, or excuse me, transmitting plant pathogens. Um, right, because they, they feed on plants directly, right? They're... Yeah. Some are xylem feeders, some are uh, phloem feeders, some are mesophyll feeders. Uh, so they kind of hit all parts of the plant. Uh, but basically, um, from my perspective, I study uh, phytoplasmas in, in palm trees. And my the one of the big ecological questions I deal with is the um, epidemiology of these diseases and how it relates to uh, the plant hoppers that that transmits them. So sure. And what's what's a phytoplasma? Just so we can clarify that. Uh, it's a type of bacteria that uh, over time, uh, over evolutionary time, it's kind of uh, reduced its genome to where it's an obligate intracellular parasite. So uh, it's in some regards, similar to a virus where it can't survive without a living host. It doesn't utilize the host uh, DNA like a virus, but it needs that uh, environment within the insect or the plant itself to, to survive. And they're phloem limited. So these insects that feed on phloem with this, you know, needle-like mouth part um, are... So they put really... a little hypodermic needle and they poke it into... Exactly. The, the vascular system of the plant, you know, the little place where they got the, the nutrients and stuff moving around. Yeah. So I like to think of plant hoppers as the mosquitoes of the plant world. Yeah, um, there you go. <laughs> um, that's how I look at them. And it's, a, I think, a nice way for uh, your average person to relate what these things are and what they're doing. Uh, and like I said, that's my main interest in their, their ecology. But all sorts of different hoppers have uh, some of them have weird behaviors. I've seen some uh, some hoppers doing rather obscure dances on leaf surfaces. So um, uh, they also uh, they use uh, vibrational signals to find mates, uh, which is rather interesting. Uh, so they have lots of neat little um, aspects to their biology. Uh, but my main interest is their role in transmitting plant pathogens. And for the most part, they're phytophagous. In other words, they're feeding on plants, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, and that's part of what we've been finding is in the past, all of the you know surveys that were done in the, the 1800s, uh, if you read some of these old taxonomy papers, the, the, the guys are saying like, oh, you know, it was really hot. So I went out for a half an hour outside of my hotel in the morning and collected and then that's it. And because it was 1800, uh, everything was new that they were they sure. were collecting. Um, you know, for me, working on a specific disease in palms in Florida is the reason why I've been focusing on plant hoppers associated with palms in Florida and the neotropics. So I'm kind of exploring a niche that hasn't been explicitly looked at, and I think that's why we're finding all sorts of new species uh, because it just has been ignored. And this this new species you have, and we'll we'll talk about when it is specifically. It's it's Herpesaurus. Yes. Uh, let's we'll talk about that how it got its name and what all those mean here momentarily. But sure. this particular one is from Costa Rica, and you said you collected this yourself, right? 
Yes. So we've been doing annual surveys in Costa Rica for the past few years, uh, mainly because I have uh, strong collaborations with some of the professors in the university uh, down there. So they've been able to do the uh, legwork on getting collecting and export permits, which is uh, rather difficult for Costa Rica. So uh, I got some funding early on uh, and have been because of the infrastructure, the access to permits, uh, and I, I know Costa Rica really well, so uh, it was a good place to start my survey efforts. And knowing that Costa Rica is kind of a hotbed of biodiversity across the board, it, it seems like a logical place to, to look for new taxa if you're interested in species discovery. And, and how do you find these things? So how do you collect them? So you're, you're walking around in Costa Rica. Obviously, you're looking because you specialize more in palms. Yeah. So you're looking at palm trees and the like and, 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 and related types of things. How do you collect them? Well, the first few surveys, we were really focused on uh, looking for new uh, strains of phytoplasma in the palms. So we were driving. Basically, we would go down, drive around the country, look for dying palms sample the palms, and then collect whatever bugs are in the, the area. Then uh, we were fortunate we found one spot where the palm was rather low, and I noticed all these plant hoppers on the underside of the leaf. And I, I collected them, and I brought them back. And when I was trying to identify it, I realized that it was a new species. And I was like, well, this... That was easy, um, and they were they were all over they were all over the palms. So I started readjusting, and on the future surveys, I was more interested in looking for plant hoppers, and they didn't necessarily have to be on a dying palm. I was starting to realize there was lots of plant hoppers on any of the palms, healthy, sick, whatever. Um, so in the subsequent years, what we would do is we would go down. Anywhere we saw a good habitat, good collecting spot uh, with palms, we would just uh, pull off to the side of the road, or if we were staying at a hotel or lodge, we'd go on the trails and take a sweep net, and anytime we see a palm, we give it a few sweeps uh, and see what we get. And, and, a, and a sweep net, for people who are listening, is kind of like the old butterfly net, only a little, little sturdier. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we would just walk around, uh, collecting directly from the palms, uh, from any that were accessible. Uh, and if we saw something fluttering around the net, uh, we'd suck it up with an aspirator. It's a little, like... A uh, little tube. Yeah, a little tube to just um, suck them into a vial. And uh, I bring them back here to, to Florida. And, um, you know, when I have a little bit of spare time here and there, I, I figure out what they are, uh, you know take pictures. Yeah, sure. So, uh, but and I then, have to say, I have to say you're, you're making it sound like it's easy to go in the field and get these things. I've been around palm trees. They are unpleasant plants. Oh, when, <laughs> believe me, the, it's not, uh, it's easy to make it sound, uh, pretty laid back now, but it, you know, there've been moments in the field when, you know, we're extreme exhaustion. We would, you know, hike 45 minutes to get to a specific site to find uh, absolutely nothing. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, 
Well, and the palms themselves, they can have very rigid and pokey mm-hmm. leaves in there. Oh, know, yeah. Especially when they get down to the dead lower ones if they're not well-maintained. Most people think of a palm tree like in Florida there where you are. These really well-maintained things oh, or, yeah. or you like on the tropical beaches that people think about. Those are all well-maintained. Yeah. But that's not a typical palm. <laughs> no, no. Like, and if you go out into the rainforest where we do a lot of our collecting, there's a genus of palm called Bactris, and they are armed to the teeth with spines on the trunk. And we were collecting in one of these areas, and uh, my uh, my collaborator, uh, he just took a wrong twist of the net and got. Uh, some of these large spines jammed up under his fingernails. So, oh. uh, yeah, the the plants do fight back from, from time to time. So hey, Even just the leaves, like the leaves mm-hmm. can have really pokey. I mean, I don't know. It just yeah. I, Everybody has this romantic idea. He's like, oh, he's just walking along a beach collecting collecting little tiny bugs on the palm trees. No, nope. no, no. <laughs> yeah. Palms can be, uh, and some in the genus Phoenix, at the base of the leaves, they have these like really robust large uh, spines that, are they can they can they yeah can and, and some of them even have glands on them to just kind of like mm-hmm. put really noxious little things on you that burn and mm-hmm. yeah they're just fairly unpleasant plants in general yeah. they're they're beautiful but they're tough <laughs> they are now that you've collected the species and you've gone through you know getting poked and prodded by palms as you walk through the field you get it all the way back to your office now and you sit down and look at it. What's what's telling you that this is a new species? Like if you had to describe this to to like one of your kids, like, hey, this is how I know it's a new species, how would you how would you describe that to them and say, I know this one's different from that one? What's what are you specifically are you looking at? Um so uh, basically for our con- getting it to uh there's different structures for different levels of identification. You know, you know, you look at the uh, mouth parts for getting it to family. Uh, for example, most of the species I'm describing are from the family uh, Derbidae, and they're identified because the last segment on their mouth part is uh, basically reduced in size to where it's this little, like, ball, whereas all the other ones have, like, two really long segments. Uh, the Derbids have a small, short segment at the end of it. So that gets us to the family. Then... Uh, you know, when we're looking at uh, tribe or genus, uh, you're looking at uh, wing structures, body structures, um, things of that nature. But then when you want to go to species level, what really you need to have to establish what is a species uh, and confirm if it is described or if it's a new one is the the genitalia of the the males, uh, basically the last few abdominal segments, uh, and the adiagus. It's this sclerotized structure that it kind of uh, latches onto the female for for reproduction. So those structures are very unique. Now, yes, that adiagus is is often that's the polite word. Sometimes you you do hear it referred to this, although it, that's the that's the technical term. Sometimes yeah. it's also called the penis for yeah. it. Exactly. Just so people have an idea of what we're talking about, we're talking about the male yeah, structure it's here. The, yeah, it's the the male reproductive uh, genitalia. Um, it's not a penis, just so we're clear on yeah, that to yeah, people out there. Of but course. but that, that's how it's sometimes referred to colloquially, so people can understand. What yeah, just referring. a frame of reference. Um, right, right. Yeah. So it uh, that now the problem is some of the older species, like they didn't start using those structures or realizing they were useful until I think it was like the 
50s or 60s. Uh, so a lot of the old descriptions, uh, you know, in my opinion, are worthless because, uh, you know, it's like three sentences of, uh, you know, a brown bug, long wings, uh, big legs and that's the species description and a red dot yeah and it, it's <laughs> it's you, you can't go off of that uh right so like some of these other and often lacking illustrations so you have no exactly. idea what it looks like yeah. yeah so basically um you know if it so some of those even if you get the pictures from the museums they're so old you still can't tell um so basically you know, some of these older, you say, oh, well, I collected my specimen in Costa Rica. This species was described from Brazil, and what they are saying doesn't really match this, so it's not that species. Um, that's the best we can, can go on. Um, sure, sure. Uh, but some of the newer taxa, um, you know, they have good illustrations, and you can, can confirm or if it's a described species or a new species. And, and we're, we don't need to talk too much about this. We've talked about this a lot on this podcast before. Uh, you sa- said before we started this as we were chatting, uh, you consider yourself a bit of a gene jockey too. So I know that you guys also use molecular data for this. Are you actually using DNA, using the barcode Correct. and then a, another gene to be able to help truly distinguish that not only morphologically, just the, the shape and look of particularly the genitalia, but also genetically, these are distinct, right? Exactly. And, you know, a lot of species, you know, sometimes the morphology can be subjective um, as to what what establishes a new species, like what level of, you know, how, how big of a difference in size of the spine on the adiagus is intraspecies variation versus uh, uh, right. interspecies variation. So... The, um, but are you a lumper or a splitter? Sorry, that's an ins- that's a joke that taxonomists. No, no, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm more of a lumper. Um, yeah, and that's fine. I was just yeah. making the joke for. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh no, that this one's slightly longer. It's a new species. Yeah. Well, by that <laughs> by that uh, logic, I'm not the same species as um, Shaquille O'Neal or or Larry Bird or somebody significantly taller than me. Um, Shaquille O'Neal is his own species. That man is just enormous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a big <laughs> dude. Um, but so I'm more of a, a lumper. Uh, but the the molecular data is a way to surpass uh, ambiguous. Sometimes the morphology is clear. It's obvious. Um, sometimes it's not. So it's nice to have a um, another tool set and set of um, data to help frame the identity of the species, uh, but also understand the relationship, uh, the phylogeny of, of the group. So, um, you know, after I take the pictures of all the structures I need and get nice images for the publications, uh, I do the molecular work and we focus on um, uh, CO1, which is the standard barcoding gene, uh, which isn't terribly helpful for phylogeny, uh, because it's so variable, uh, it's really helpful for establishing what is a distinct species uh, from one another. And it's so variable that we actually use it uh, as a population genetic tool. Uh, we just published a study where the vector of this phytoplasma in Florida 
we analyzed population genetics of this bug from around the Caribbean and Florida using CO1. So it's really variable, so it's helpful for looking at uh, establishing species uh, species limits. Yeah, so you're using a, a pretty integrated approach. You're not yeah. just going strictly on morphology, strictly on genetics. No. You're trying to, to I'm, I'm marry bringing, the two. I'm, I'm putting them in the context of, uh, of each other. Uh, and then we also uh, use 18S, which is far more conserved, which is helpful for uh, fitting things into to genera. Um, and generally speaking, um, I... Typically, what I do is if there's a strong statistical support or bootstrap support for the molecular phylogenies um, that doesn't go with the current morphological descriptions, typically what I do is I say, okay, something, there's an incongruency here. And I start looking, I say, what on these specimens would allow the molecular data to jive with a, a morphological data. Uh, so I try to, you need the morphology and you need the actual specimen to identify stuff because people, you know, if you're monitoring for a, a pest in a, a certain crop and you set out traps, you're not collecting random strands of DNA floating around, you're collecting actual insects. So you need right. physical uh, characters to identify stuff. Um, but understanding their relationship, I'm, I, I, I think it's imperative to have the molecular data. So, and not just a single marker. You need multiple markers to right. accurately uh, assess the um, the relationship of the, these different groups. So, uh, right now we're doing CO1 and 18S for derbids, uh, CO1, 18S, H3 for succeeds, and I've just designed some new primers, and I'm working on expanding. So I have. Uh, one day I'd like to have five or six markers optimized for, for all of my, uh, sure. my new species. So it's a, a rock solid, uh, um, well, you'll get there. Yep. You just got to keep collecting and go, keep going to Costa Rica and other places and, and picking them up. Twist my arm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So we know what plant hoppers are kind of generally speaking, uh, kind of what they do in the world and how you found all of these things. Now let's get to, now that you've put all that evidence together, you decided, yeah, this is definitely a new species. How did you pick the name? This is kind of a funny story you were telling me. It's a play on words while at the same time actually having utility. Yeah, so um, I, you know, for people who know me, I'm not the most uh, um, serious or professional in a lot of settings. I like to, <laughs> I, I like dark humor. I like crude jokes. So I, I always uh, like to, to play around with stuff. So um, this species in particular, uh, we determined that it belonged to the genus, uh, I pronounce it herpes. Um, and uh, as soon as I saw the genus, I kind of had a smirk like, okay, where am I going to go with this? Um, and when I discovered it was a new species, I was like, well, uh, how about we call it uh, herpes uh, sori and, you know, a tongue in cheek reference to herpes sores, um, just for, yeah. <laughs> for fun. Uh, and, uh, uh, so we, based on the, the, I guess the rules of the, of naming stuff, it came out to herpes soros. Um, so, uh, it's a kind of a crude reference to, to herpes sores, uh, the name that I picked, 
But as it turned out, uh, my my collaborator, uh, Dr. Charles Bartlett, did some digging on Latin roots, and um, I guess the term he picked uh, was a compromise between my joke and uh, actual um, description of the the parts of the adiagus that that fit with what we were looking at. So it worked out. Yeah, so it, it did actually have some descriptive nature to it as well, yes. because it, it means like uh, a cluster or clump of stuff, right, basically? And that kind of describes of spines it. or something. And this one has yeah. like a cluster of spines at the, the apex of the adiagus, which, uh, so it worked out. Um, so, so your dumb luck joke, you, you were like, hey, dumb luck, it worked. Yep, yeah. <laughs> But it's, you know, I have other species I've named for family members. Uh, I have another one I'm working on uh, in the genus Oropuna, and I'm calling it Halo because the adiagus, uh, it looks like the needler gun from that video game Halo. Uh, oh, okay, so, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> whatever really tickles my fancy when I see these things. Sometimes I have fun with it. Sometimes it's an honorific uh, some very rarely I, I, I do the, the proper thing. <laughs> now, I, I want to make sure we ask this last question because this is one of those groups where a lot of people could easily overlook them. They're small. They, they kind of move around. They don't pay a whole lot of attention. Sometimes they're very showy, but a lot of times they're not. Yeah. And people go like, why do you work on those? We've already talked a little bit about it because they can be important vectors yes. for plants as far as like they're, they're basically can move diseases from one plant to another. Exactly. Are there... Outside of that, are there additional reasons why we should be telling people like, hey, no, you should be paying attention to plant hoppers in this world? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think... Because I, I, and I'm not trying to downplay the first part of this because that's a yeah. very important reason. Like yeah. we need to understand how how diseases are moved from one plant to another yeah. uh, for to protect our own crops, right? So that's part of the reason why we do this. And, and I'm just kind of curious... Uh, so, when people say, like, why do you work on plant hoppers? So, I mean, besides the fact that they're, they're vectors, I'm sure part of your answer is going to be because they're really cool. <laughs> oh, obviously. And, you know, I would be lying to say that wasn't the primary reason I'm interested in. You know, I was and that's an okay reason, yes. by the way. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And for, for scientists, it's absolutely acceptable. Now, I know that that's not going to get a lot of grant money. It's like, come on, these things are cool. So... Uh, you know, my position is focused on vectors of plant pathogens that are of economic importance. So that's really where uh, I focus. Because of that, I've gotten interested in them just from a biological perspective. I realize how diverse they are, how strange they look. And, you know, as a kid, I was a, uh, a sci-fi nerd and I still love science fiction. So when you get these things under a scope, they look like little aliens. Like they're really, sure, yeah. they're really cool looking. So that for me is one of the big draws to them. For other people, that's also a draw. But aside from the pathogen and the ability to transmit these diseases, um, other things that can be potentially be important that are a result of just innocent curiosity and looking at the things. I saw a report recently that they found the first case in the biological world of gears. And it was the coxie of the hind legs of a, of a plant hopper. And they realized that it was the jumping mechanism. And they look closely. And the exoskeleton forms these perfect gears. Yeah, like little teeth, like gears. Teeth that fit and it locks and it springs. So 
little things like this that we could find just by looking out of curiosity could have potential from like an engineering perspective to improve some aspect of uh, something that is economically important. So, um, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of uh, uh, playing around with things that you're just interested in. Sometimes you stumble across something that's valuable and important to the larger uh, human populace. A lot of the times it's, we're looking at it because we just like them. I mean, a lot of people forget that penicillin was discovered completely by accident. Exactly. Yes. And, and it was because somebody who's a microbiologist who just really liked growing bacteria yeah. discovered all of a sudden something else growing on his plate and yeah. was like, hey, I wonder why that happens. Yeah. Well, the next I, thing you know, we have penicillin. Yeah. Well, I've always heard that the, the, the difference between science and messing around is that in science, we write it down. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, Brian, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. This has been a real treat talking to you and a lot of fun. Well, thank Learned you for a lot having today. me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I, and please, uh, if you get some new species coming out in the future, let us know and we'll see if we can get you back on. Yeah, thank you. I I, I have no shortage of, of stuff to share. So uh, um, uh, you just keep uh, keep watching the, the zoo taxa thread and you'll see you'll you'll see them. Perfect. Well, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks, Brian. Once again, Dr. Brian Bader's paper is in the September 6 issue of Zootaxa. The title of the paper is A New Species of Plant Hopper in the Genus Herpes from Lowland Tropical Rainforest in Costa Rica. See the episode details for a link to his paper. And to learn more about Brian, check out the episode notes for more information. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.